Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown, and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me on the show again today. A few weeks ago, I spoke about asset bubbles, if you remember, and uh, and one of the things that puzzled me was how asset prices can run ahead of inflation, generally speaking. So I've done a bit of digging and I've come up with at least a partial explanation behind this strange phenomenon. It's a word I can't seem to say. Uh, of property prices consistently outperforming inflation and average earnings. Now, it's not as simple as you might think. And even today, I'll focus on maybe one dimension, which is mainly around the growth in the money supply ahead of consumer spending and cons- consumer prices. So if you're ready for a little historical, statistical analysis, then buckle up, maybe grab a notepad, because there's going to be a lot of note taking maybe on some of the statistics I want to share And listen carefully as we uncover some unseen truths behind asset price inflation. Okay, so on with the show we go. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Well, I wanted to start today really just by talking about my day today. In fact, I'll I'll, I'll whistle through this if I can. And then I normally have a three to five rule, meaning I can realistically only get through three to five main action points in a day. I don't mean, you know, brush my teeth, you know, comb my hair, make a cup of tea, that sort of thing. I mean, three major things during the day, three or five. And so today I spent the morning out on site and uh, was doing a uh, looking at a property renovation and, and doing a snagging list. And it's the final week before handover to, towards the end of the week. So just going through making sure everything's OK before that uh, particular pro- uh, property is finished. So um, and it finished in a, in, a, in a bar with a nice beer with the architect. So that was a good old thing to do as well. So that was my morning. Uh, and then, you know, early afternoon, I spent discussing a couple of projects and, and lining up a viewing on one. Thank you, Mark, for helping out and Jonathan with a viewing on a property that I'm uh, looking to buy. And also um, I did a bit of number crunching, had a chat with uh, someone who's got a, a property I'm interested in taking on as well. So that took a couple of hours, if you like, just after lunch. But the rest of the day and not just the day, well into the night really well into the night. Just for you, dear listener, I've been researching and uh, preparing for today's podcast. So that's been my day, if you like. And I feel kind of privileged that it can work that way. And so, yes, I was doing some businessy stuff at the front end of the day and early part of the afternoon, but the rest of it has all been about giving back. And I just wanted to focus on that point, really, and just to say, if you value the uh, content that I share each week on the Property Voice podcast, then it would be really useful if, uh, one, you could let me know, but if you could let everyone know through a podcast review. And you can leave a review at iTunes uh, for the podcast. I know it's a bit fiddly, but on the other hand, I've had about 11,000 downloads in the last month and I've got about 50 reviews. So, um, and the, you know, we are growing in terms of download count, um, people listening to the show. So it'd be great if you don't mind, please go, you know, put a bit of effort in and uh, go and leave a review for the podcast. It, it gives me a lift because it makes it feel uh, worthwhile, especially when I'm recording this in the dead of night to make sure I meet my deadline. But also it helps other people find the podcast. So it'd be great if you can do that for, for other people to find us. 
Anyway, that's that out of the way. I wanted to get into the meat of today's show, which is all about uh, inflation, really. Um, and it's, um, you know, don't believe the hype is the subtitle. So I'm going to go through quite a lot of statistics today. It's a bit different in terms of the content of today's show. And that's part of the reason for the uh, research. I spent hours and hours pouring just to get some of these data points. You might not think so when I just rattle them off, but there's quite a lot of research that's gone into today. So straight on with it. Let's first of all outline some of the different measures of inflation, first of all. Now, we have to start, if you like, with retail price indexes or RPI. Uh, and this is the first true measure of inflation, certainly for the UK. And it dates back to the early 20th century, um, which we, it was brought in to, to, to measure the effect on workers of price changes during the First World War. So it, it was around for a while. I say was because it's no longer uh, deemed fit to be an official national statistic, according to the ONS or um, Office of National Statistics. There's a lot of words I can't say very well today, so hopefully we get through this okay. Um, yeah, it was rebased at least three times during the period of its implementation. And um, the last measure, even though it's official, not official anymore, it was 4% uh, in October 2017. So you might be familiar with that. But more recently, uh, the government's been targeting inflation tracking the consumer price index. And that's different to the retail price index. It's been tracked or measured since 1996, uh, effectively rebasing inflation at that point in time, of course. And uh, since 2013, it's been the official measure used by the government, as I alluded to. It includes what's called a basket. Imagine an imaginary shopping basket of 700 goods and services spanning 12 categories, which are namely food and beverages, alcohol and tobacco, clothing and footwear, housing and household services, furniture and household goods, health, transport, communication, recreation and culture, education, restaurants and hotels and miscellaneous goods and services as well and you might be thinking to yourself that all sounds pretty comprehensive 12 categories 700 items which are representative of our consumer spending but it isn't quite what it seems so note in particular the following um, housing although it's mentioned it actually excludes owner occupier costs so cost of mortgage and that kind of thing but it also excludes the cost of buying property and also council tax but it does include rents and, um, and housing maintenance and service costs. So it's got some, some elements of housing, but definitely not all and certainly not house prices. And health excludes most of the national health service expenditure besides things like prescriptions and dental charges. So your big operations are not included, um, but prescriptions and dental charges are. So a bit hard to determine, really. Similar story with transport and communication excludes government spending on infrastructure projects. Recreational and culture excludes government grants. Education excludes publicly funded education. A bit of a picture forming here. There's a lot of public expenditure um, which is excluded from um, these official inflationary measures. And of course, there's been quite a lot of price change in these uh, services as well. Um, and, and there's some other things that are included, which perhaps are relevant for us. The housing or financial service related costs, such as mortgage fees, legal fees and that sort of thing. Uh, but they, they exclude the cost of financial assets, things like stocks and shares, um, bonds and gold and that kind of thing, other precious metals and, of course, property itself, as I already mentioned. But needless to say, the last uh, measure of CPI was in October 2017, and it was 3%. So you've got this difference, if you like, between RPI and CPI, 4% RPI, 3% CPI. So it's around about 3 or 4%, the official measure of inflation. 
There's a new measure that's kicking around. It's called consumer price index, including owner occupiers housing costs. And if you remember when I talked about CPI, I said it didn't include um, owner occupier housing costs like your mortgage. And uh, CPIH is supposed to address that, but it doesn't address it in the way you might think. In other words, it doesn't have mortgage costs in there. Instead, it includes a notional rental value for your own home. So imagine you you you, know, you could rent your home for £800 a month. It would use the £800 a month figure rather than the cost of your mortgage, which might be four or £600, let's say, um, instead. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit odd in that respect. But um, it, given the fact that CPI already includes rent payments, does it really make any difference, I'm wondering? Well, probably not much. And as the measure of CPH was 2.8% in October 2017 versus 3% for CPI, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of difference. Apart from it's slightly lower. So maybe that's a reason for it being recommended to be introduced. And there's a link in the show notes if you want to see a, a little bit more a context around what CPIH is all about and why it might be coming in. But really what I wanted to point out is the official measures of inflation are between 3 and 4%, generally speaking. Then we've got, we've got other types of ways of tracking inflation or price changes over time. So we've got wage inflation. That's what you know it matters to us in terms of our pound in our pocket. And the Office of National Statistics uh, compiles data on average weekly earnings, and it breaks it down in regular pay or total pay or just bonus pay. But, you know, I look at total pay as the true measure, if you like, of earnings. And, uh, and the last measure recorded was September 2017. That's 2.2%. Then we've got a number, quite a large number. I'm going to focus on this a bit because obviously it's a property podcast, uh, house price indices. So we've got the house price index, uh, the UK house price index or HPI, which is now a joint production by HM Land Registry in England and Wales, uh, Land and Property Services in Northern Ireland, and Office for National Statistics and Registers of Scotland. And Land Registry and their equivalents in Scotland and Northern Ireland figures offer a record of all sold house prices, arguably, therefore, the most meaningful, but it can be quite out of date by the time you've read it. It includes, uh, however, all lenders, cash sales, and auction sales, as well as repossessions in its data. So you would argue that it's uh, it's the most complete holistic data there is, although, as I mentioned, it can be a little bit out of date. And this new combined index was introduced in June 2016. It includes all residential properties purchased at market value. And, and I read there, at market value. So does it therefore exclude properties not bought at market value? Um, maybe not. <laughs> But it succeeds the Land Registry um, House Price Index, which only really addressed England and Wales, so it's, it's UK-wide now. But do keep in mind that it takes time for sales to be reported. So the data is released, um, but, sorry, by the time the data is released, um, only around about 40% of the sales will be recorded and therefore available. So it's revised later on once all the data comes in. So you could have this strange situation of seeing, you know, for example, in September 2017, the figure is 5.4%. You could see that re being revised as more data gets added to it, either upwards or downwards, depending on what that uh, those house price sales are. But it's pretty useful and probably the best index for actual sales data over short to medium timescales. You want to see the recent past, um, then probably go looking for this one. And the next one I'll mention is um, conversely something that's probably good for looking at the, the long distant past, the longer term. 
uh, in particular the nationwide house price index, but Halifax did one as well. Uh, nationwide has been going since 1952 and Halifax has been doing there since 1983. And these are based on the value of mortgages they approve and therefore the property that uh, is for sale right now. And, uh, and these account for roughly uh, nationwide about 20% and, and Halifax about 8% of the 75% uh, of sales that are mortgage finance approximately. So you can see it's a smaller subset of the marketplace. So it isn't quite as broad, obviously, as the house price index um, by any means, but it's, it's got longevity on its side. So I quite like it for that reason um, alone. It doesn't include cash sales, um, as I say, it dates back quite a long time. Just as a, a bit of a by the way, over the full period of the nationwide house price index, i.e. back to 1952, um, house price growth has averaged about 8% a year over this 55-year period. So at a glance, you can already see that, um, okay, inflation at the moment is around about 2 or 3, uh, sorry, yeah, 3 or 4%. No, is it 2 or 3%? Uh, whereas average house price growth over the long term has been about 8%. But the latest measure of house price growth uh, for, for um, nationwide is, I'm just scrolling from my notes, is 5.4% um, rather for Halifax and 2.5% uh, for the nationwide. So a bit of a difference there, if you like, in those two measures. And then we've got uh, Rightmove and Zoopla, who both do an index. Now, Rightmove uh, house price index is compiled, obviously, by Rightmove, but it's based on asking prices. So it's, it's the listing prices or asking price of properties, not sold prices. So usually there's a difference. Um, there, there's always a, a difference between sold price and asking price. So, it's you know, that's a limitation, if you like, of that. But it's been in existence since uh, 2013 and it focuses on property for sale right now. And the latest index figure is 1.4% for October 2017. And as they, they comment in their write-up, perhaps there's a bit of an autumn lull in anticipation of a quiet winter and price, asking prices haven't climbed that much. But, you know, it's asking price data, not house price. But I guess you could say it's useful for an indicator of what's coming, um, whereas the previous two were more lag indicators of what's gone. Uh, how right move might be a lead indicator of what's coming. And Zoopla also do one, and um, they claim it lists every UK home, some 27-odd million of them. With, uh, which estimates values calculated using their proprietary algorithm, which analyzes, in their words, uh, millions of data points relating to property sales and home characteristics in the local geographic area. So, in other words, we don't really know what it is. It's their proprietary algorithm. Um, and that, for me, is a problem because I don't know what it's based on. If I know it's based on recent sales or asking prices, at least that's something I can hang my hat on. But this sort of complex algorithm, I don't know what it is. Anyway, needless to say, Zoopla's measure as of November is 3.6%. Uh, and the final two really are a little bit more sentiment-based, I suppose, or uh, yeah, sentiment-based, good word for it. Uh, we've got one from RICS or the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors. And, and what they do is they speak to their members, which are essentially estate agents and valuers, every month to see um, how they are viewing house prices and whether they think they're going to rise or fall. It's a binary question. Do you think house prices will rise or fall? And then they turn this into a percentage, uh, which they can record in, in terms of market sentiment rather than actual house prices uh, themselves. So I suppose the benefit of that is you can get some uh, insight from people who are close to the ground of property, estate agents and valuers, and get their opinion 
Um, but of course, they don't all agree. It's not 100% uh, either way, rise or fall. So yeah, I'm not sure how meaningful that is, but I'm um, not really one for forecasts. And it looks like the RICS are not necessarily either. And the final one is Home Track, Home Track's house price index, which is similar to Rick's. It's based on uh, contributors' opinions on achievable sales price, uh, selling prices rather, for each of four standard property types in every postcode district. So the prices are hypothetical rather than based on actual sales. It's opinion-based again or sentiment-based. So there you go. You've got a couple of historic measures looking at actual sales data with you know relative uh, pluses and minuses or strengths and weaknesses. Then you've got some uh, you know based on current view with right move and Zoopla. One is asking price based. One is based on an algorithm. And then you've got this sort of sentiment-based uh, opinion of what house prices are likely to do from RICS and home track. So they're the sort of main measures of house prices, but I guess that the most most reliable ones will be nationwide and indeed the, uh, the land registry, the various land registry ones. But I don't want to stop there. I just want to elaborate a little bit on other factors and what I think is, is giving rise here to maybe a difference, particularly in property prices and other asset prices versus um, inflation. So the next thing I really wanted to get out in terms of this conversation, this discussion today, was different measures of the money supply. So we've in the UK, we've got two main measures of the money supply. We've got M0 or M0, depending on how you want to say it, uh, which is also known as narrow money. And that includes, you know, obviously coins and notes in circulation, but also other money equivalents that are easily convertible into cash. That's why it's called the narrow money supply. So it's kind of a narrow definition of, of money. And then you've got another one, which is called M4, which is a broad um, definition of money, the money supply. And then in this case, it's... Um, you know, it includes um, to the totality of assets that households and businesses use to make payments and, and hold the short term investments. So it's a broader definition. There's more you know, different types of money that goes into the M4 measure. It's the most extensive one that the government measures. But it doesn't capture all, as we'll talk about a little bit later. There's a number of things, number of definitions of money that are not wrapped up even into M4. So we'll come on to that later. So what, to make sense of this, we kind of need to compare, if you like, some of these different indices. Uh, and I've taken a, a time period of the last 30 years. So it's a reasonable time period. Um, it was difficult to get data for much longer than that. And nationwide, obviously, been going 55 years. But some of these indices haven't been around for as long as this. Some of them have changed. So RPI has definitely been around, but isn't so relevant anymore. Nationwide did exist, but it's perhaps a little bit micro. Land registry prices, they didn't record it so much. So 30 years is a good sort of point to, to have a look at. So let's start with the official inflation figures. So bear in mind, this is the government you know, saying what uh, the official measure of inflation is and what they're going to target. And their main target is around CPI or consumer price index. <clears throat> and just remember, this largely tracks consumer spending cost increases. So what you spend your money on, or rather, some of what you spend your money on, because I'm going to come on to that in a second. But CPI, essentially, since 1989, it doesn't go about the full 30 years. So a couple of years out, 2.6% on average, whereas RPI was 3.4%. So nearly 1% difference in CPI and RPI on average over that 30-year period of time. 
so that's the first thing to note, really. And then average earnings. So uh, obviously, we've got spending on the one hand with CPI and RPI. But with earnings, it's like how much money we're we getting in our pocket from the day job. And this tracks uh, the ONS, in fact, the Office of National Statistics. They, they track average income growth from employment activities. And their average earnings figure, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I picked up the one which is for total earnings, is 4.1% uh, over the last 30 years. So if you look at the notional figures, it looks like we're doing okay, doesn't it? Around about 4% versus around about 3%. 4% average wage growth versus around about 3% average um, spending cost increases. But you might not feel it's that way. And there's a couple of reasons for that, which I'm gradually explaining and unraveling. And I'm alluding to actually the money supply being uh, one of these significant factors that has a bearing on, uh, <clears throat> on how wealthy you might be feeling. So let's look at the money supply data. M0, do you remember, is M0 or M0 and M4? So M0 has uh, grown by an average 5.8% since 1987, whereas M4 has grown by 7.6% since 1987. So that's, you know, around about 6 or 7, approaching 8% in the case of M4, uh, average growth over the last 30 years, versus something like 3% for inflation and 4% for wage growth. So the money supply is running ahead of uh, consumer prices and wage inflation. And um, just to put it into perspective specifically for this podcast, as far as house price growth is concerned, the nationwide house price index over the last 30 years has shown an average increase of 6.2% and the land registry house price increase uh, of 6.7%. So it's kind of similar. It's more similar, if you like, house price growth being more similar to the money supply uh, increase than it has inflationary increase. And I think that's relevant. Um, as, a, as a slight, uh, um, rele another relevant point really is stock market growth. I thought I'd mention this. It's another type of asset. Bearing in mind that house prices, stock prices, stock market prices are not included in the standard measures of inflation. So the UK all share index averaged 6.4% over the same 30 year period, quite similar to property. Um, so I'm not going to sort of get into the camp of uh, fighting, you know, for property over um, shares, apart from you can leverage more with property than you can with shares. So that usually gets my vote anyway. But uh, you can see around about six or seven percent for property and stock prices versus around about um, two or three percent for uh, house price. Uh, sorry, <laughs> consumer spending increases. Just a quick byword on interest rates. Over this same period, that's 30 years, interest, uh, interest rates in the form of bank base rate has averaged 5.1% uh, over that 30-year period. So we obviously have been a decade in low interest rate environment. And some people will only know that. But trust me, interest rates have averaged about 5% consistently over the long term. So keep that in mind uh, as you go forward the next couple of years. So in addition to those stats, I kind of wanted to get some of the more global stats out um, whilst, we're, whilst we're sharing here. And, and it kind of, this kind of points to um, how money is, is used uh, and, and how money is defined a little bit. So I'll share an infographic in the show notes if you really want to see where this data has come from. Um, it's a fascinating uh, infographic, actually. But just in summary, it puts things in perspective in how the world's money is spent. So this is a global view. Uh, do you remember I talked about M0, uh, M0, which is banknotes and coins? 
um, pretty much anyway. Well, banknotes and coins in circulation globally amounted to $7.6 trillion. And the, the world's above ground gold reserves is about $7.7 trillion. Um, it used to be the case that uh, bank money was banked by the gold standard. And so 7.7 .7 trillion of gold and 7.6 trillion of, of banknotes and coins, it suggests that it's still bank, uh, banked by gold, but actually it isn't, as we'll come back to later. And you contrast those figures, so around about 7.67 trillion, uh, with the global stock market capitalization, capitalization, capitalization of 73 trillion. So that's 10 times as big as the uh, as the gold reserves and the money uh, the bank notes and coins money supply. Um, M naught globally, so actually it's, it includes some of the short term deposits in banks, is actually 30, nearly 37 trillion, and M4 is about 90 trillion. So that gives you an idea of the world's money supply. But keep in mind that only 8% of global money supply is in actual physical cash. So physical cash is only 8% of those uh, 37 or 90 trillion uh, money supply figures globally. And contrast that with global debt. Global debt consists of government debt, corporations debt, and indeed household debt, which amounts to 215 trillion or in other words, 325% of global GDP. And uh, a third of that was added in the last decade alone. So um, yeah, we're certainly piling up the debt. And that's relevant, again, to the conversation that I want to have today. So the money supply, uh, the debt levels, it's all relevant. Um, GDP is a reflection of earnings. So debt is three, you know, three times earnings uh, globally. And then if you look at the global residential real estate market, it amounts to 162 trillion or 75% of, of the total global real estate. So significant asset values is what I'm really driving at here. But this is completely dwarfed when we look at the, the global derivative market, which is hard to predict because a lot of this is private. But the estimates of the global derivative market range between 544 trillion and a staggering 1.2 quadrillion, which is, I don't even know how many noughts that is. It's huge. Uh, but examples of derivatives are credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations, which you might not know about, but you might have heard about through the global financial crisis. And there's certainly two of the things that led to the collapse of certain banks and the global financial crisis around about 2008, 2009. So we still got a ton of that stuff around. And nobody really knows exactly how much. That's quite worrying in itself. So where's that money come from? Um, well, we're going to find out. Oh, by the way, I did talk about Bitcoin, didn't I, uh, a week or two ago. So just to put this in perspective, the uh, market cap of Bitcoin is 138 billion. So it's kind of tiny compared to all the other figures that I've been talking about because they're in the trillions and the quadrillions. So 138 market cap of, uh, of Bitcoin, albeit growing still at the moment. Um, and there's some other um, cryptocurrencies, but they're, they're much smaller than, than Bitcoin. So what's my point? <laughs> what am I, why have I relayed all of this information today and quoted statistics and trends and that kind of thing? Well, uh, the main point, really, I suppose, to point out that the inflation, official rather, inflation figures only measure around 10% of what we actually spend our money on. 
It doesn't include things like um, buying property. It doesn't include buying stocks and shares. It doesn't include buying derivatives. So we're only tracking the, uh, the growth in, in expenditure on a small percentage of what we use uh, and spend our money on. The other point is earnings, i.e. our income, is only one way in which we can generate cash that we spend on stuff. And as we've seen already, banks and governments, they can create money that also gets spent in the economy. And, and most of that gets spent on, uh, on things that we, we, we don't track price growth on as well. So if you imagine only 10% of what we spend gets tracked in terms of inflation and 90% of what we spend doesn't. So that kind of sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? And um, yeah, adding to this, currencies like sterling, like the dollar, uh, other currencies have come off the gold standard, which means governments can basically print money without having any physical asset, which, uh, such as gold, to back up the, the I promise to repay the bearer on demand pledge that you see written on the back of your, uh, of your pounds. And uh, it used to be the case that you had to have an equal amount of gold to the, the, the notes and coin in circulation so that it was, it was backed by a physical asset. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore. So this means that you've, you've got this large-scale printing of money, uh, which, which governments can do, and they can use that money to fund their budget deficit spending. They can spend it on wars. They can spend it on long-term infrastructure um, programs and, and, and debt and that kind of thing. So, yeah, so printing money um, from governments, that's a nice one. But they're not actually the biggest um, issuers of money, surprisingly, perhaps. It's not central banks and governments. It's actually the commercial banks, uh, normal everyday banks, which uh, actually create the most money. And this has been particularly so um, since what's called fractional reserve banking, which means they can create money at many times that taken in deposits. So if you deposit £100 into the bank, they can actually lend out, say, £1,000, notionally, on that £100 deposit. They just need to know that you won't necessarily go back tomorrow and ask for your £100 back, or only 10% of you might, for example. And they can just create extra deposits, and they usually create these extra deposits in the form of loans or lending. So if you like, your saving that goes into the bank gets multiplied up into lending that gets lent out to businesses and households and individuals. And it's um, surprising to hear that um, a, a bank in the UK does not actually need to hold any cash at all to cover its liabilities. Yeah, when I kind of discovered that, it's quite a shock, really. So it doesn't actually have to hold any physical cash, but it perhaps give you a little bit of uh, peace of mind. Um, but thanks to banking regulations brought in after the last financial crisis, and in particular Basel II, as it's known, Banks are now at least required to hold 15% of their total liabilities in what's called Tier 1 capital. And Tier 1 capital includes retained earnings and shareholder things, funds and that sort of thing, but not specifically cash or gold or something tangible. So it's just uh, balance sheet entries, really, of shareholder funds. And as I've said before, this is like uh, having a, an 85% loan-to-value mortgage. Uh, but in the case of the bank, it's mostly secured on a range of assets and sometimes not any assets at all, unsecured lending like credit cards, for example, um, which are obviously far less secure than purely property. And this means that banks now create huge sums of money in the form of de debt, which are lent to customers. 
And between you know one another, they actually you know create money and lend it to one another. And this is where the derivatives market can come to play as well. Uh, and this debt gets spent on assets, including property, in the large part. I'm not saying including property on the large part, but assets on the large part. It's kind of fascinating when I get into this, and I'll, I'll give you a book reference at the end if you want to look into it a bit further. So governments print money that gets spent on its own activities, such as schools, hospitals, pensions, and other items which are not captured by any measure of inflationary price tracking. They also print money and back, uh, buy back their own government debt um, which, you know, in the form of quantitative easing. That's, that's that kind of process, which, of course, pumps more money into the economy. Usually, this money goes to the private banks, commercial banks. And those commercial banks lend that money to, to households and to businesses and to individuals. But at the same time, they tend to increase uh, or the, the government spending on, on QE, quantitative easing, easing rather, tends to push up certain asset prices in particular, such as bond prices and potentially also reducing returns. Although that's not always the case, but certainly one asset class few quantitative, uh, through quantitative easing has perhaps seen some, some different results because uh, money's being pumped in the economy. It's driven up bond prices and maybe the bond prices are in a bubble. Who knows? But investors, uh, individuals, if you like, also use their money to buy assets. And they buy assets in the form of stocks and shares and property and art and, and that kind of thing, um, which all falls outside of the official measures of inflation. All of those things do. Investors can further leverage their purchasing power so they can increase their purchasing power by using bank borrowing as well. Uh, you'd be familiar with this, obviously, um, as a property investor, buy just the buy-to-let mortgage. You put a deposit, you get the bank to put in the rest, and you can buy a property that you couldn't otherwise afford. Uh, of course, it's secured on assets. The, the loan is secured on assets. Uh, most of this leverage is secured on tangible assets in the form of real estate or property. And this explains or helps to explain to a large extent why house prices have potentially out what they have actually outpaced rather official inflation measures. And in summary, this is down to um, official inflation measures excluding large elements of housing costs uh, from, its, from the items that it tracks. And in particular, you know, most clearly, housing prices it themselves. Also, banks and governments can print money, 90% of which gets spent on items that are not tracked on inflation. We don't merely spend what we earn in income, we also spend what we create through the multiplier effect of government and bank increases in the money supply. And significant elements of this additional money gets spent on assets, including property. And a lot of this money is created in the form of debt as well. So all this money, in a sense, is all this money sloshing around, 90% of which is spent on stuff that we don't actually measure the price increase. So it's understandable, probably, why we've got the, um, you know, a, a pumping up effect of money circulating being spent on assets and not being reflected in, in consumer price uh, inflation. And that hopefully gives a bit of an explanation behind it. It's certainly my opinion. Now, is it fair is it fair that the government, you know, these privileged groups, the government, uh, the banks, and let's say investors with access to this money in the form of debt, um, can get hold of this money and can buy assets that 
you know, people outside of those special interest groups or privileged groups can't. Well, it probably isn't fair in reality. And, um, you know, maybe there's this groundswell uh, building what we should do that. But just think about those special interest groups for a minute. You've got government, you've got banks, and you've got individuals, you know, with access to, to borrowing who won't want to see that taken away. So that's where the balance of power actually sits. So it may not be fair, but it's probably realistic to think that's the, that's the way it is. That's the system. And those that can print money can create deposits or can borrow money can spend this on their own agendas or in line with their own agendas, which, of course, includes asset purchases for many. And these asset purchases are typically bonds, precious metals, stocks and shares, uh, property, and also, as you will see, um, derivatives, or sorry, as you saw, derivatives as well. So a lot of this money spent on assets. Um, so what can we do about it? Well, we could complain and we could campaign for change. And indeed, a few people are in various quarters, but there's not really massive campaign for change, in all honesty. Um, there's, there's a little bit around, but not, not a great deal. Um, the alternative, I guess, is you can, you, if you can't beat them, then join them or game the system, if you like. And obviously, as a property investor, you can do that. You can game the system by having access to borrowing. And so you join in to some extent the, the system that exists. You're not a bank, you're not a government, so you can't print the money, can't create deposits, but you can gain access to the leverage which you can use to buy assets. And of course, what I'm trying to illustrate throughout this whole conversation is asset prices have been accelerating ahead of consumer prices. Of course, if you buy a Mars bar and you eat that Mars bar, you, you get some energy and then it's you're done. But if you buy a property or stocks and shares, hopefully you'll get continuing value by owning that asset. So the word of caution, really, it's best to be sensible with asset prices, as they do, as I've mentioned in the bubble uh, episode, they do tend to boom and bust, as we've spoken about. So ideally, spread your money around um, across different asset types or asset classes, as they're called. And remember that income brings a lifestyle, so it helps you to eat um, and to do certain things, some of the things that you can spend your money on through the consumer or retail price index measures. Uh, whilst it exists, so whilst you have the opportunity to earn money, maybe through employment, but assets bring long-term wealth. They, out, they stand for a long period of time. And so that's why they bring long-term wealth and maybe they bring some passive income as well. So make sure you get on the asset train as early as you possibly can. And I know that, you know, young people struggle these days to get on the property market and that kind of thing. But you can get onto the asset market sooner rather than later. You can buy stocks and shares, for example, and you can start saving for a deposit on a house. And I suggest you do that sooner rather than later. If you happen to be a frustrated millennial wondering how you're going to go on the property market, well, make a start with uh, perhaps buying some stocks and shares. Uh, and of course, you can game the system a little bit, um, certainly as a property investor, by taking a, a buy-to-let mortgage. We're not banks, we're not government, so that's what we can do. Well, there we have it then. This has been a subject that's been on my mind for a while, really. And I, I wanted to share some data to back up some of the thoughts that I was having. I've provided some links uh, to many of the data sources in the show notes. It's taken literally hours for me to read through various things and do some number crunching. Uh, and I'll point you to some of the, the source data if you want to go and look up that uh, sort of thing for yourself. 
However, if you, uh, if you want a good overview of the subject and, and perhaps a bit of an enlightenment uh, perspective, enlightened perspective, then I can highly recommend you, re you read the book, uh, uh, Beyond the, I think it's called Beyond the State. Actually, I've written Beyond the State. I'm not sure that's what it's called. But the correct reference is going to be in the show notes. It's a book by, um, uh, by Dominic uh, Frisby. And uh, I'm going to actually look it up whilst I'm, I'm actually recording here. But having, I have to say that I, I, I studied economics at A-level and also as part of my university degree way back when. And I was certainly not aware of many of these economic realities back then. You know, the principles of QE or quantitative easing and fractional reserve banking just didn't exist. Yes, I am dating myself um, by, by making that sort of reference. But um, it's been quite an eye opener, really, to see how the financial services industry and how government policy has changed over the decades. And of course, this has led to a massive increase in the money supply. And I believe this increase in the money supply has primarily boosted asset prices, property included, over the last 20 to 30 years. And, um, and that perhaps gives a little bit of context and explanation as to why house price inflation has probably been running ahead of consumer price inflation and indeed wage inflation. And by the way, that book reference is Life After the State by Dominic Frisbee. So that's the correct book, book reference, which I quickly checked whilst I was uh, finishing recording. But I hope that some of today's uh, rather more statistical and technical musing has helped to explain, at least in part, why house prices have tended to outperform uh, official measures of inflation. Now, what you do with that knowledge is completely up to you. But before I leave you today, uh, just a quick recap on uh, some of the deals that we've been sharing from our Property Deal Tip subscribers in the past week. Now, remember, these are, of course, assets that you can buy. So there is a link <laughs> as well as a plug. Um, so, for example, uh, we found a, a buy-to-let uh, property, standard buy-to-let property in Swindon. It's within a half mile of station. It's got a, a gross yield of 8.6%, very healthy, £253 a month net cash flow. That's net cash flow as I calculate things. So that means it includes voids, it includes maintenance, it includes all the costs. And uh, of course, an, well, not of course, as well as an equity boost of around about £10,000 or so by acquiring the freehold interest. It's, an, it's a flat, but you can acquire the freehold interest and, and just load up an extra £10,000 in value as a result of doing that too. So that was one. Uh, or if you prefer something more, that was a buy to let. The other one is a, uh, you could either flip this or you can buy refurbished refinance uh, if you don't mind undertaking a project. Uh, there was a four bed semi-detached property in Braintree in Essex. Uh, it was in need of a full refurbishment, but nothing structural, just fairly standard stuff. And by using cash or indeed bridging finance, you could enjoy a 10% return on your cash investment or up to £28,000 in return on that same investment for six to nine months time in the project. So where do you find projects like this for just £97 a year, I hear you ask? Yes, I do hear you ask. Well, you head, if you head over to the Property Deal Tips page and just sign up, that's where you find them. Uh, you can find that at thepropertyvoice.net slash property deal tips. I'd love to see you come and join us and make sure you do quite soon because I am planning to increase the subscription level once I reach a certain subscriber count. I have to put my teeth in. So if you want to lock in the introductory rate of £97 a year or £9.97 a month, you best not delay too much longer, I suggest. And you can also help to support the cost of running the Property Voice podcast and my other interests in the, with the Property Voice as well in the process. So if you really do value the content that I'm putting out, 
you can say a quick thank you just by subscribing as well. So that'll be great. Okay, that's enough for me now. It's getting really late. I hope that's been a, an interesting and informative uh, podcast for you today. Uh, of course, you can email me if you want to talk about any aspect from today's show or indeed more widely in property. You can reach me personally at podcast at thepropertyvoice.net um, or indeed you can find the show notes over at thepropertyvoice.net as well. But for now, all I want to say is thank you very much for listening again this week. And until next time on the Property, Vo- uh, Property Voice podcast, it's Jaja. Ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.